Well, welcome to the Memoirs of Abiding podcast. I'm Chris Bryant. We wanted to start something a little different and counter to what many have been taught or learned through experience. Our topics will be practical and theological, focusing on what the early church thought. What we are going to talk about isn't some new idea, but rather an old idea gaining traction again. Our tell is sharing our experiences and looking at the Bible and this material. Our ask is that you will take it into your own devotion time and ask the Lord how to best apply it. We will talk about this material each week, and we have blogs addressing practical applications at www.memoirsofabiding.com. We hope you experience God through talking about His Word with us. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever the time is for you. We are back on the Memoirs of Abiding podcast, and I'm Chris Bryant. And with me today, I have Ricky Brooks uh, co-hosting on this uh, joyous, joyous month, joyous, joyous month. <laughs> it is joyous. It's filled with joy. And uh, yeah. I'm always excited uh, on the mornings when we do our, our podcast. It's just always fun to chat with you and be uh, stimulated. And, you know, that iron sharpens iron. And I, I, I hope others get sharpened, too. And I really love this, this particular four-part series about abiding and experiencing the joy of the Lord by having a close dependency connection with God himself. Yeah. So thank you again. Here we go. So I, I, I named this one, uh, the idols of our lives. And I'm, I'm playing off the old as the sand through the hourglass. So are the idols oh. of our lives. So for those who, uh, who are dated back to that era, then uh, you're welcome for that one. <laughs> hey, quick question. Is that, are those, uh, Soap opera's still around? You know what? I have no idea. I know the uh, the ones on the Spanish channel are. I've, I've passed by those every now and then and laughed. I remember going to visit my sister once after we were both had launched from, from home, you know, and she was married. I was a, a young soldier. I had some time off and I went to visit them. And, and I, I'm like, uh, her name was Floria. We called her Flo. I said, Flo, you're a housewife and you're doing the thing. You're you're home in the afternoon watching the soap opera. Soaps. And she said, Yeah, sit down and watch it with me, Ricky. And <laughs> and for and for a while I got hooked on one called something about uh what was it? All my children. It was fascinating because it was like this one woman and she was just like the epitome of evil. It was it was hilarious. Oh wow. Oh, wow. The idols of our lives. So what are we talking about, Chris? So we're talking about idols and uh, specifically the joy stealers of our lives. Last week, we talked about happiness versus joy and the difference when we're talking biblically between the two. Now I want to talk about one of the, the things that pulls us away from that joy. And, you know, I think the big place to start is Maybe there's some people that don't really know what an idol is. You know, some of our listeners we realize can come from different backgrounds and may not may have heard idols are bad, but not so much. I mean, you see it, the American idol and you think like, oh, that's something that's ideal that you hold up. Yeah. But 
Yeah. But when when you're hearing that word, Ricky, what what immediately comes to mind when they say, "Well, what is an idol in the in the Bible?" Yeah, and that's exactly how I look at it. I, I totally understand that. Like we said last week, words are wonderful little instruments come, that come with a lot of nuances, and so words can be used uh, both and have both positive and negative connotations depending on the context. An idol is certainly one of those, like the American Idol. That that's not a negative. That's kind of a that's kind of a cool hip thing, right? Yeah. Uh, but the normative use of idol would be something that we worship, something that we bow down to. And of course, the world over has examples of that. And I think when most people think of idol, they're thinking of like a some kind of a statue or an altar or a totem or something to that extent. False idols, we oftentimes hear that phrase with the two words together. So, you know, and in our world and the biblical world, we see that in Scripture talked about quite a bit, all the false idols of the Old Testament, like Baal and Molech and all the different names of the false gods. But it certainly also has a much more um, potent idea about it when we understand it better. If last week we talked about our connection, our dependence, our closeness by abiding in the Lord, is our solution to all of our problems because uh, in John 15, 11, uh, which we're going to talk a little bit about today at more length, where the Lord is talking about he's the branch and we're, or he's the vine and we're the branches. If we abide in him, his joy is made complete in us. Well, if the joy of the Lord is complete in us, then all the things that that fail us all the things that we find meaning in, significance in, uh, contentment, peace, rest, joy, they are no longer front and center. Instead, God is front and center. And we can learn to enjoy a lot of things, but most especially we have the constancy and consistency of the presence of God that gives us our stability, our joy, our peace. So this week, then, it would be as well, we're looking at the opposite side. What about those things that we touched on lightly last week that rob us of living in the presence of God? So in the, in the book of Romans, I'm going to turn there real quick. Chapter 14, there's a, a, a passage that's talking about when a Christian comes in contact with like the false idols, the temples of that first century world. And, you know, can you go there and, and buy some meat, for instance, because there were sacrifices being made? Well, someone whose faith is weak probably shouldn't go there because he or she might get sucked back in. But someone who's walking closely with the Lord could go there. They're not affected by the those that environment, and they say, "Hey, I'd like to purchase some meat, you know." And then you take it home and cook it up. 
But the conversation about uh, the the strong and the weak in faith, um, you see that in First Corinthians as well. I think it's in as well. Exactly, and I'm. Uh, it says in so it says in Romans chapter fourteen. Uh, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. That would be, if you're the strong one and you have a brother or sister who's still weak in that area, well, then don't go to that temple. Because if they see you, the stronger person in faith going, they might go, oh, well, it's still okay for me to go there. They go there and the temptation draws them, them back in. Verse 14, as one who's in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone else regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing God to God and proved. So there's this idea here that when your faith is strong, when your walk with God is strong, right, then the, there's even neutral things in the world that other people might fall into sin with, but we will not because we're abiding in the Lord. However, the idea that if we don't have an abiding strong faith in the Lord and our faith actually ends up being in something else, like in this case, the temple or the things offered from the temple, then that faith in that other object, whatever it happens to be, anything and everything, rather than faith in God, for that person, it becomes sin. Why? Because sin is basically not being in connection with the Lord. So anything not of faith in God is sin. Now, somebody might, holy cow, that means nothing. Everything I do is potentially sin. And that's the reality. Because when we're not truly connected to the Lord, then we're not placing our fullness of our faith in him. It's those other things we talked about last week that become our idols. Not in the full-blown sense of the people bowing down before a, a statue or something, but we keep grasping at all the stuff of the world to give us that meaning, that significance, security, destiny, joy, contentment. And as a result... Anything then can be the object of our of our idolatry. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it definitely brings out the the beauty of the cross because you know when we think of good people, philanthropists, doctors, yeah. you know those people that do good on a daily basis, and maybe they don't kill maybe they don't steal maybe they don't cheat or lie or do any of those things that we genuinely uh consider sin so then i go well 
what do I need a savior for? I, I'm saving people's lives daily as a doctor, or I'm I'm helping all of these people through all of my charities. What do I need it for? But Ricky, what you just pointed out there, which is what Paul points out, we really do see the impact of sin because it's it's anything that proceeds from our mouth, from our breath, that's apart from God. And that's that could literally be saving lives. Could be sin if you're doing it apart from God, if you're doing it to to build yourself up or anything like that. And so when I going back to the idols, you, you talked about the temples, you talked about the the false gods. So when I tried to define idols, what kind of came to my mind based on my reading of the word of God and understanding of it is idols seem to be objects or even ideals, which we elevate to an equality with our relationship with God, with Christ, something that we put in front of God. Would you say that would align with what you're describing there? Yes, exactly. Uh, and, and, as Paul continued to develop this argument, he concluded it in verse 23 by saying, but the person who has doubts, that's that the weaker person, when he goes back to the temple, when he goes back to whatever that thing is that keeps him or her from abiding, uh, from being content in God, when he goes back to whatever that is, is then condemned as he eats because he or she is fulfilling the, the the completeness of who they are in something of this world. And then he goes on to say, because his eating, because again, it's the eating of the meat sacrificed at the temple in that context, is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So if it does not come from faith in God is sin. So the, the thing that I, I think people need to understand is that we always think of sin as that ugly word, dirty burn, you sinner, <laughs> that kind of hellfire and brimstone kind of thing. Uh, you know, we always think in, in the realms of when Christians talk about sin, the evil of mankind, you know, the heart is wicked, you know, it's, it's desperately without hope, it's always deceitful that's true <laughs> we humans can do some pretty doggone rotten stuff but the beauty of the word sin is that it's really telling us the expansive love and grace of god because he recognizes that our bent in this fallen world because mankind turned its back on on god is has only we have only our bodies to use for meaning, and our body contains our brain. So we grasp at things that make us happy, make us fulfilled, make us content, make us feel significant, make us feel safe, make us feel secure, give us ultimate satisfaction. We're always grasping for things, whether we're buying stuff or shooting things in our arms or pouring things down our mouth or viewing things through our eyes or stimulating our brain through intellectual or economic 
pursuits, whatever they might happen to be, the word sin covers everything. So in that regard, idolatry becomes every human's biggest problem because those things entice us not to find our wholeness in God. Um, yeah, yeah, the golden calf <laughs> at the foot of the mountain was definitely an idol. But their idolatry began long before they, the Israelites built a, a false image, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really a beautiful word because, as you put it, it takes us right back to the cross. You know, Jesus is not just concerned about the horrible, rotten, ugly, no good, bad day things that people do. He's concerned about every, every jot and tittle of all of our thinking, all of our lives. That's a huge, compassionate, arms wide open on the cross statement of God's grace and love. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important to consider, you know, you know, your title of this, of today's broadcast, Joy Stealers, the Idols of Our Lives. How is it then that idolatry does rob us of the joy and contentment, the peace that we can have through abiding in the Savior? Yeah. And, you know, we go back to John 15 with that one. We talked about it a little bit last week with our joy may be made complete. And, and I want to read a little bit of John 15 so we can get the context of yeah. what we're saying here. We never want to read God's word out of context. So we'll read a little bit into it. But I think you'll see how this verse and then we compare it to the idols, how this can really take that away. So when we look at John 15, we'll just start with the, the first 11 verses and go from there. But Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have I loved you now remain in my love. If you can, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you or so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made complete. So let's just, you know, we'll stop there. Looking at this, if, if you take this in the context, Jesus is describing himself the vine and if we think of even not as a gardener but if we think of a vine the vine is what connects to the roots and as those roots pull from the ground moisture pull from the ground the nutrients the phosphates the nitrates everything needed for that plant to sustain the the vine takes it to all the branches and therefore to the leaves and if it has some sort of a fruit or a flower it'll 
it'll bring it towards that. But ultimately, the source of the nutrition is from the vine. And if you think about it, if you cut off a branch from the vine, you may have come up with this. You're like, where did this branch come from? Is it from this tree or this tree? It's got no identity apart from the the vine either. So we get that total source from God. And what does it show comes from that? I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So as we abide in him, as we make him our source, he gives us everything that we need in order for our joy to be made complete. So take that idea, but let's contrast that to when we mentioned an idol. So if an idol is something that I put above God or in equality to God or in front of God, then all of a sudden my relationship with someone becomes my source of meaning, of identity that you know, I want them to know that I'm I'm married or that I'm in a relationship. I'm not that single guy. I'm not that cat lady. I am in a relationship and it's it's monogamous and this person loves me and I share it all on Facebook or Instagram, you know, whatever the, the social media outlet is. So the people know this guy's normal. He's OK. So that becomes my source or a source for me. Well, once I start taking a source from someplace else, I find that no longer am I sustained. No longer is my joy because, you know, we talked about this in previous podcasts. God is immutable. He's not going to change. Yet that relationship with that person might, you know, that that job that I get, that might change. We talked about that even last week, right? About the the non-permanence of these human organizations and and human things they're all temporal so this relationship i might be in you know you have that honeymoon phase that a lot of people go through whether it's the first month or two of a relationship or you know maybe it's the first six months but then all of a sudden things change you know they they don't schedule out their entire life around you and then all of a sudden well this isn't this isn't okay like i'm not I'm not receiving that identity. I'm not receiving that source that I want. And all of a sudden, now I'm not so joyful. I'm like bitter. I'm resentful because they said something. Well, all of a sudden, we start finding that the joy or the happiness, as we defined it, that uh, that feeling of contentment is no longer as great as it was because we put our, our source in something outside of God. But since God never changes, that joy is always there, even when I go through the trials. The joy is still there. Why? Because he's still there with me. I may be sorrowful, but I'm still joyful, right? And so we we have this contrast where in Christ, my joy is made complete. Outside of Christ, well, I don't bear much fruit. In fact, I start to wither away, as he says in verse 6. You're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Well, do we wither apart from the abiding in the Lord? Yes, we so do. So many times we start to feel depressed. We start to feel anxious. We start to feel stressed and overwhelmed and and unloved and all of this stuff. So I I think that's a a big part of, you know, why the idols are able to steal our joy. I, I think you chose a great example, too, when you talked about spouses. I'd like to come back to the text in a moment, but if you if you if you really stop and think about what is it we're doing when 
our spouse, or we could expand from there, our children, or the people we work with, or whatever it might happen to be. When we engage them without faith in the Lord, without abiding in the Lord, according to Romans, the Apostle Paul, inspired by God, to us then that is sin. Somebody say, well, how in the world can that be? That means a really good husband, <laughs> a really, really, really good husband, you know, who is really, really in love with his wife. You're saying that's sinful? Well, yes, because of that expanded meaning of sin, when we find our ultimate purpose in something other than God, it is that separation, that wall, that boundary we put between us and God. Now, why is it sinful? Because it's part of the fall. And you, go, But being a great husband, being a great wife is good, right? Yes. But look at the position we put our spouse in our children in, our parents in, or whatever else it might happen to be, when that's how we live our life. A husband and or a wife were never meant to be our savior, one another's savior. And when we, and when we engage them as though they are our all in all, when we cannot live without them, the burden on them is to be God to us. And nobody can sustain that, right? We all know that there's a give and take because we are not perfect. So when I place, when I put the, when I put the, the weight of my life into someone else because I get my meaning from him or her, they then have an un- fair responsibility to ensure that they are constantly all that for me. And they will ultimately, somehow, it doesn't have to be by choice, just by the fact that they're not perfect, they will fail us. And so when we do that to one another, it make it gives perfect, makes perfect sense then of these these meta statements of the Bible, anything not of faith is sin. Or in verse five of this passage, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, Jesus is talking in a very meta, you know, over the top kind of way, you know, the big, big picture Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, of course, I could, people can do some things apart from the Lord, right? They can do really groovy things. But Jesus is making this point similar, different words than God gave to the Apostle Paul. Anything not of faith is still sin. It's separation. It's putting something else on the front. Because if you're not abiding in the Lord and his word, you're abiding in something else your own intelligence, your own reasoning ability, uh, somebody else's uh, rationale, uh, some other pursuit. So in that sense, he's saying the same thing the Apostle Paul is. Oh, by the way, I, I said, if you abide as opposed to remain, uh, e either word translates the Greek word behind that, 
uh, remain is a little bit problematic because it might give some people pause to think that it's a geographical thing or a, a physical proximity thing, you know, I'm hanging out over there. But this is that that idea of I am all in. I'm I'm physically, intellectually, spiritually, socially, mentally remaining in relationship with somebody. I'm I'm completely dependent in this relationship. So abide, I think, is a little stronger word. But I, I hope I hope folks are getting the the idea here, and so they don't go away going, man. He just told me that my spouse is an idol. <laughs> Because in Christ, when we abide in the Lord, then really, if both spouses are truly abiding in the Lord, then in a real wonderful, beautiful way, they don't need one another. They both need their walk with the Lord. As a result, they give one another the very best of one another, right? And they give give to one another the completeness and the wholeness, the contentment, the joy of the presence of God in their lives to one another. They can love each other, depend on one another in ways that they could not do apart from, first and foremost, having contentment, abiding completeness in the Lord. So yeah, I think that's a great, a great example of an idol that we don't think of, or as a potential idol that we don't think of as idolatry. And it doesn't have to be that I prop up my spouse or my children in an effort for salvation. It can just be something that I want an identity in, you know? So if you're thinking, well, I don't, I don't do that with my spouse. I know that Christ is my salvation. I'm getting into heaven because of that. Yeah, I did too. And I've shared this before, but my marriage, not necessarily my spouse in a, in a person, but my marriage as an entity or an ideal became an idol in my life because everything was about being the best husband. I wanted the world to see what does a good husband look like? And then it went to the level of idol being, I had to be identified as that husband. So I I would serve my wife as best as I could that I knew how to. I would I would do all of these different things. I would serve her. I would give her days to just spoil herself. And so I poured into that, but it wasn't because of necessarily the love of Christ. It was I wanted people to see this ideal. And that became an idol to my life. Same with fatherhood. You know, I wanted everyone to see what it was like to be a good Christian father. And so I was helping my daughter to hit all of these milestones because that became, you know, a point of identity. If my daughter hit all these milestones early, clearly I was doing right as a father. I, I was a good father. So my yeah. daughter, I was teaching her how to climb and walk. And, you know, she ended up walking at like seven months and it was insane. And she, she was fully walking at like eight months and having no problem, no couch cruising. And I was like, yeah, see, I, I did it. I was teaching her all these words and it was like, yeah, see, like, but it became an idol because like, that was my point. It wasn't like helping her and, you know, being God's hands extended as a father. It was, I wanted her to reach all these milestones so everyone could see how great of a father I was and not necessarily 
how much God's love impacted me as a father. So it, it can be as something as simple as that in our lives. And it doesn't have to apply to, to just those, but that's definitely a good point, Ricky, on, you know, just the fact that all of these different things in our lives, when we place an identity piece in it, it, it let's, let's even talk about, we've got Super Bowl Sunday, right? Coming up. And, um, you know, the weaker, stronger brother, don't do the things. Well, you said there's neutral things. Well, to one, the Super Bowl can be an idol and football can be an idol. And it yeah. became that in my life. I, I found out 2008 or nine, I was, I was watching a USC uh, and Oregon game. It was huge. I think it was 2008, huge game. And I was like, I knew all about the players, like all the starters. I knew what high schools they came from. I knew their stats. And at the time, my my wife, I was still married. My wife came into the room and she said, are you ready? And I was like, watching the game. It was like first quarter. I was like, ready for what? And she said, we're supposed to have a date today. Did you forget? Uh-huh. And I was like, uh, but the the game, like, why would I schedule a date for a day of like these top? And this was when USC was one or two and Oregon was like two or three or something like that. And I realized that that moment when I looked and it was like a choice between going on a date with my wife or watching the game. This is this is an identity piece. Like, you know, I was a USC fan through and through and it was an idol. I, I could not let it go. So I ended up letting go of college football and then well, NFL and then college football, maybe a year later. And, um, you know, for me, for the longest time, to watch the Super Bowl was to fall back into that old way of life. You know, you talked about the 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 meat or go into the temple for the the weaker of the two. That would have been me for the longest time. But now I can look at the Super Bowl and you know we've got we've got at our church a Super Bowl party. I can go to that, and now I I'm in a position where football doesn't identify me. Like it's not my identity. I loved football. I coached football for a year. I enjoyed that. But it's no longer an identity piece for me. So I could go to that, the, the temple, you know, the, the Super Bowl, which is the temple of, of football. And, and I could go and I could say, oh, I don't really have a problem with that. This isn't causing any sin in my life, meaning identity in it or meaning or purpose. I just go to cheer on, you know, a good game, watching athletes play at the top of their game, hopefully and eat some food and, and and enjoy some fellowship with other people. But there may be someone who still has an idol of football in their life that I say, hey, come join me in this game. And it causes them to kind of go back into, you know, oh, I, I, I need this. Oh, I'm, I find my identity in football. So even modern day, we have these temples that still exist that we as a brother or sister in Christ need to be cognizant of and, and aware of that it can cause someone to fall back into the, this particular idol in our lives. And and it points even more so why we need Christ as the center piece of our life and even in our relationships so that we don't fall back into these. Yeah, well said. I it's I know that it kind of is a strange and stark thing for a lot of people when they hear this for the first time, because then some of the implications come into play. Well, is then should I not have 
a relationship with someone else? No, of course not. Because when when you finally come to grips with this, like the passage in in John fifteen, what Jesus is saying, abide in me, abide in my my words, abide in my truth. You know, I'm the Savior, not your wife, not your not your business, not your hobbies, not your intellectual pursuits. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the the one and only. I'm the one that gives you life, real life, honest to goodness, true born again life. I am your sustainer. I'm the sustenance. I'm the bread of life, the water of life. I'm the branch. You're the vine. Then <laughs> the marriage relationship blossoms. We don't have to keep nagging our wife or our husband to make us feel good all the time. Then the football game becomes an incredible uh, fun pursuit because I'm having just as much joy watching the game, but I'm not like, you know, throwing my beer bottle or my bowl of chips at the screen. And then I'm like, now where am I going to watch the game? <laughs> right. Uh, I'm not, I can pursue excellence in business because if the business fails, I am still okay. I'm still content. I, my God is the almighty God, not the, my bank account, not my popularity. We actually get to enjoy all these things that God gives to us even more so when we finally begin to understand this. But when we, when we don't and we give ourselves more faithfully to either true false idols, things that are evil, right? Like maybe stealing, committing adultery, you know, actual things that are sin, those are not neutral. They are clearly idolatrous, right? But all these things that are neutral and can be wonderful or they can be problematic, uh, once we understand that abiding in the Lord is our all in all, our complete sufficiency, then all those wonderful things become more wonderful. We don't have to remove them. Now, some of them might need to be removed for a short period of time, or we alter our behavior or our placement with them so that we get centered on God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in the case of pursuits that I used to be involved in that I could not handle, like the way you describe your football fanaticism, you know, it was causing you to make a choice between your beloved and and the game. Yeah. Uh, she could not have been happy about that. No, it didn't turn out to be a good date. <laughs> yeah. And uh that that can't that can't work. So so in that regard, until you refocus and, and in that process, you might have gone from, okay, I'm gonna dispense with the football so that I don't neglect my wife. Now your focus above and beyond God is your wife. Well, you can't put your wife aside 
You can put football aside. You can't put your wife aside. So how do we make those adjustments so that wife or children or other things that we cannot dispense with? Well, some people they just can't handle it, so they do. They, they seek separation, and that's really unfortunate. But that's never the solution. The real solution, when the things in our life become problematic for us because we're more invested in them than we're invested in God, or we're more invested in that thing or that person than that thing or that person is invested in us, it causes us to slip further and further away from God. Then the answer is not that thing or that person. Remember, that thing or that person in this discussion we're having is neutral. It's our response to that outward thing or person that's in question. So the answer is not dispensing with them like we do with things we absolutely don't need in our life or things that are sinful in our life. The answer is doubling down on God. Yeah. And way too often, people in the body of Christ cave in to other things or reject other things or reject the goodness of God rather than doubling down on his truth, which is what Jesus refers to as abiding in my word, doubling down on our walk with God, which Jesus says is abiding in me as I abide in my father. It, we do those other things rather than doubling down on abiding in the presence of God, which Jesus in John 15, 11 is saying, and when you abide, like I abide in my Father, my joy will be made complete in you. Then all the wonderful neutral things become more vibrant. They become more colorful. They become more attractive. They become, because they become balanced in, in this thing about the connection between God our faith and the things not of faith, which become idols to us. So it's, let's... it's really a crystal clear, vivid, systematic, normal theology of what it means to walk with God. Just sometimes people don't understand all that. Yeah. Let's look at a couple of idols in the word of God. I, we never, we never want to just uh, kind of glaze over the word. So, Sure. I want to bring up just maybe one or two, maybe even if we have more time, some more. But the big one for me when I look at lives today is relationships. And so I wanted to to show Samson, not typically one we talk about with relationships, except for with Delilah. But he's he had three different times where, um, you know, he's a judge in Israel at the time. This was before they had a king, Saul. So they had these judges that came up from time to time to help guide Israel in, in these moments. Samson was there and was in this constant contention with the Philistines who were over Israel at that moment. And so we can find him in Judges chapter 15, well, 15 and 16, at least in, in the portions that we're looking at. So realize at this point, God had commanded the Israelites not to co-mingle, not to be given or taken 
relationships with the people of Canaan, the people who are in these areas, because it could draw them away. And, and God's real concern was idolatry. They'll take you and, and teach you their ways. They'll teach you their gods and you'll worship them instead of me. So the commandment to them then was marry within the tribes of Israel and not over to the tribes of all these different nations. May I interrupt so, you for a second? Yeah. So you, you'll end up worshiping them rather than me. Let's rephrase that. You'll end up finding your all in all and your, your relevancy to the world around you than you do in me. You're more concerned about getting along, you know, so you go along with all these other things as opposed to having a close dependency connection with me, your true yeah. God and Savior. Yeah. So when the biblical language of salvation, worship, there are many other words that are more familiar to to the melu of our culture so dear listener pay close attention to that when you have these discussions with people that like samson it's not just the false idols in the sense of the statues that delilah and her people quote unquote worshiped she herself becomes an idol the fulfillment of his lust became an idol. He, quote unquote, air quotes, needed her in order to feel expansive, to feel good, when all Samson really needed was the God of creation. Yeah. Yeah, and we're going even to the the wife that he had beforehand. It says yeah. later on, this is chapter 15, verse 1 of Judges. Later on at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat, and went to visit his wife. Um, so he was already married. We see that in the previous story. I'm, I'm not going to jump into that, but the yeah. way he took took a wife at that time wasn't wasn't ideal. Actually, let me just say the the language his father had, because this was pretty important. In, in chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, "I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife." His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson, you know, pouted, shouted, stomped his feet, said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Um, so just pause in there and, and fast forwarding. Samson went outside of, of God's will, of God's um, moral will and said, you know what? This is what I want. I don't care what God said. I want this person because whatever his reason was, whether she was gorgeous, whether she was, um, you know, sexy in the terms, whether she had whatever it was, Samson said, mine, I want that. So we have Samson going in his own trying to find meaning and purpose in this relationship. Well, Unfortunately, after this feast, he insults some people there at the feast, this Philistines, and causes a lot of contention with them. Well, later on, so now we pick up in chapter 15. Samson took a young goat, went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. 
I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Let's let's stop here and take note that the the lifelong relationship that I'm sure Samson believed he was in all of a sudden changed. Do we see that? Like he assumed he had his wife he was going to visit. That relationship all of a sudden changed because his father-in-law did not allow him and in fact gave his wife to someone else in marriage, even though he had already given her to him in marriage. So now all of a sudden his his idol, now all of a sudden his source and his meaning changed. So then Samson said, well, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really hurt them. So he went out and lit uh, 300 foxes, tied their uh, tails into pairs. He fastened a torch, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, onto their tails, lit their tails on fires, sent them into the grain fields of the Philistines, burned them all up. So the Philistines, picking up in verse 6, said, who did this? They were told it was Samson because his wife was given to a companion. So the Philistines went up, burned his wife and her father to death and said, well, now, paraphrasing again, I swear I won't stop till I get revenge on you. So we have this contention getting worse, discontentment, resentment, bitterness on Samson's part, all because of what his idol and it was taken from him and his source was not in God. It was in this this individual. Now she's dead. There's never a point of reconciliation here. So we see continuing on. Did he learn his lesson? No, he continued on. Um, more so we have wrath and, and conflict. So we pick up in, in 16, chapter 16. Well, one day Samson went down to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he spent the night with her and the people of Gaza said, Hey, Samson's here. So they surrounded the place and they made for him, but he, uh, he, he was still blessed by the Lord and got into it. But that was kind of the same situation we see with his, his first wife. So then all of a sudden, we fast forward a little bit. Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, hey, see if you can lure him. So we have this story of Delilah and Samson. Samson, you know, finding his identity in this new relationship and Delilah utilizing, you know, her position and, and maybe she could get stuff. We don't really know her motivation, but we do know that the Philistines were Delilah's people. So she had some sort of a, um, I don't know what you'd call that, a maybe an allegiance to them. And so she tries to get Samson to tell her his secret of his strength. And Samson plays around with it. You know, we always hear this with the plane with fire. And uh, eventually he tells her the truth and he's enslaved. He goes in, loses his power because they shave off his hair tragic story for Samson, but ultimately we see these idols taking and dragging him down and his source becomes all of these different things. His lust, if you want to call it his lust for um, relationships, all of a sudden drag him down. I know I talked to a lot of people, Ricky, that this lust for relationship, even if they don't use the word lust, it's a deep drawing desire from their flesh to be in a relationship with someone 
whether it's, you know, when we hear lust, we think of the, the sexual aspect of it, but even lusting after the emotional um, security of a relationship or even the status of a relationship, all of those could be lusted after. And Samson had that and it did not bring joy. Not in any part of Samson's life do we see joy resounding as a result of all these idols that he had. In fact, we see the opposite to the point where his eyes are plucked out, his strength is taken, and he's emasculated in front of the entirety of the assembly of the Philistines. Uh, it's it's really tragic. Yeah, it's a, you know, a lot of people not knowing the Bible very well go, well, that's, I didn't know stuff like that was in the Bible, you know, and, and some people will even go further. Well, if it's in the Bible, then that must mean, you know, what, that that kind of stuff is good. Well, no, just because it's in the Bible, it doesn't mean it's portraying the truth of God, the, the truth of God that we should abide in. God doesn't uh, hide anything, even his own people are exposed under under the banner of the fall from the grace of God, original sin with Adam and Eve. And Samson, of course, was one of them. So were his parents. So were the women in his life. So was, you know, and, and Delilah playing a large part in that. So were uh, the Philistine folks who who wanted to gain an advantage over him they are all an example of what we've talked about you know over the course of the last half hour 45 minutes or so they're all people one to one degree or another one way or another finding their source their significance their connection you know, and you know, talk about the gusto of life, the meaning of life, the fullness of life. They were finding it in all these other ways. And as a result, everything spins out of control. And in the spinning out of control, you can think of this spin. It's, it's you know, a, a, a downward spiral into the descent, into the pit of despair or darkness. Or if you look at it the other way. It's a spiraling up of tension, anxiety, frustration, anger, becoming violence, becoming vengeful, having malice in our hearts. Either way, you know, whatever direction it goes, it's further and further and further away from the true source of meaning, joy, contentment, real true life, that, you know, God himself. So when we describe when we've described earlier what it looks like in a contemporary marriage, how even the most special person in our life, if we're not careful, can be an idol because it's not a faith, you know, because we're not, it's not flowing from first and foremost from our contentment with God. Uh, this Old Testament history is the Lord's way of showing us, be careful, <laughs> how you engage the things and more importantly, the people of your life. Are you engaging them as a, as an extension of abiding in me or are you engaging them apart from me? Because we do so apart from me. Like is not some, some stuff is going down. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. Things are going to go down. There's another question here that, that I think begs to be asked. Well, what is it possible that two people could find love and contentment with one another? Or could somebody find love and contentment with something in this world that is good for them? And they they feel good. And I would say, yes, lots of people say, I'm not unhappy. I, I'm, you know, I don't need your God, you know, to, and, and don't tell me I'm not happy, you know, those kind of things. And, and I'd say, you know, you're right, you are happy. But when <laughs> that thing that you have found your completeness in is gone, then you will be robbed of your joy. Yeah. The world is full of, of testimonies, you know, deathbed cries to God because somebody says, my goodness, the reality, the potential of going into death, I've not resolved the question of the everlasting, of the afterlife. And even if I'm not certain about it, the agony of not knowing is too grand. You know, I remember my uncle, you know, who, he was such a good man. He was, he was magnificent. He did not know the Lord. He was a, he was just an incredibly kind, generous, soft-spoken leader among men. Um, He was in his his ninety three when he when he was dying, and as he could barely draw enough breath to still whisper words, he he asked he he, he whispered these words, "Help me, help me." And as I leaned in, I, I I'm. Uncle Lee, I don't know what you're asking me to help help you. You know, do you want? You know, at that point he couldn't. He couldn't even. He didn't have the strength even to sip water. I was, you know, take ice and rub it on his lips and things like that. And and you know, I kind of barely shook his head, but I could tell no. It's not that he. Do you want the nurse? Do you want you know? You know, you want that sweet swab that they give you to, you know, swab their lips and their mouth. No, no. And he barely was able to, but he folded his hands together. And I said, do you want me to pray for you? And then he, with a tiny nod, yes. And with pleading eyes, because we had talked about, you know, his walk is not, is not belief in God. And he had never had a need. He was very... He was a good man. <laughs> uh, he had two incredible careers, uh, retired from the military after service in World War II and Korea and the early Vietnam era. And then after that, he had he worked with civil service and he was, he was a, like I said, a leader among men. And he was a good man and people loved him. And there on his deathbed, he literally was asking, oh, God, you know, give me certainty. Wow. So we, I, you know, I said, well, 
um, uh, can I just pray for you? And I, I all, all God asks from you, Uncle Lee, is that you believe. And, and you can see it in his eyes, the contentment in his eyes that washed over him. And it wasn't too much longer after that, only a matter of hours, and and he was gone. You know, and I'm not saying that happens for everybody, but it it happens enough to establish this reality that there's only the only thing that can be 100% consistent and constant is something that's eternal. If if it is bound by matter or time or space, it is by definition temporary. And only the eternal can give us hope without failure, presence yeah. without abandonment, salvation without mistake, meaning without without a lack of it. And that's all we're talking about here. So whatever it might be that someone is making into an idol, and, and we're primarily talking to believers, you know, how, how, how much does a believer abide in the Lord? Anything that's temporary can potentially be idolatrous for us and lead us away from the joy of God. So we could then say, all that we've said about spouses or at work or whatever, you, dear listener, consider the things, the sources in your own life that are still coming first. And that's not to blame anybody. It's not to lay guilt trip on anybody. Chris, you and I know as much as anybody how the love of our, the earthly love of our life we can make that person an idol. And for you, it led to divorce. For me, when I lost my wife, when she died, I had this stark, sudden realization. My goodness, I thought my walk with God was just beautifully wonderful. And it was beautiful and wonderful. But the loss of Vanita taught me that in reality, I was a man of two saviors. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and my beloved wife. Mm. And her absence, her in her absence, though not God's intention, in her absence, he chose to teach me to double down on him and his word. It was... It was that event in my life that drove me further into the word of God to understand what it means to abide because I still had my three children, but I was a man destitute. I still had my ministry and my friends and my family, but I was a man destitute. I still had the savior and I was talking to him all the time, but I was still a destitute person. I literally realized that if God was to give me a miracle and I could choose between uh, two, 
you know, the resurrection of my wife, right? Or the physical appearance of Jesus in my life. In my grief, I would have said to God, oh, God, forgive me, but please give me Vanita back. You know, for a preacher, <laughs> for someone who who walked hand in hand with his beloved spouse and we served the Lord faithfully, that was a real sudden, stark, sobering piece of truth and realization because I could then at that point have chose in my grief to continue double-minded with regard to my salvation, my meaning, right? What would have suffered? My kids would have suffered tremendously. My relationships with parents and brothers, sisters, friends would have suffered incredibly, and they were beginning to suffer. I, too, was beginning to spiral down and, and away from God and those I loved until he, via the word of God hidden in my heart, brought them back to me and reminded me of all these things. And then doubling down, I, you know, these 20 years later, I can say my walk with God is better than ever. And I never would have said that. 20 years ago, <laughs> I would have said, yeah, yeah, our walk with God always gets better. But a little over 20 years ago, when Vanita was still with me, the kids were younger and all of that. I would have said, boy, I ain't got no needs anywhere. I'm, I'm good, guys. I'm good. I'm fulfilled. I am. I am one jolly camper. But there was still a part of my soul, a hole in my soul that I was filling with, with Vanita and not God. Mm. It's a sobering thought because as good as our relationship was, I think back on it and go, there are so many ways I could have given her, given her more. I could have been better for her, better for my children, better for the people I served in my ministry, better for my dad, my mom, brother, my sisters, my nephews, my nieces. There's just so much more I could have given. But it didn't because I thought I was giving them the best of me. Am I making sense? Yeah, I appreciate the vulnerability on that too. Yeah, so, yeah. Idols don't have to be big, ugly statues, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And and idols doesn't mean they mean to be idols in our life. My wife did not want to be my idol. She used to tell me all the time, she said, Ricky, it's not me, it's the Lord. And I would be like, well, yes, that's true. I understand that. <laughs> you know, my big theological brain. Well, well, I know that. I just want you to know, honey, I can't live without you. Well, every husband that loves his wife says that. Every wife that loves her husband says that. For me, it was a really, 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 really true statement. Mm. Yeah. Though yeah. so I would have preferred, Bennett, that I could have been smarter and more spiritual so that, and I'm not suggesting God took her from me to teach me that lesson. He's not. 
the puppeteer in the sky, you know, and we're not marionette puppets. But he does seize the opportunity when sure. things go bad, you know, to create beauty from ashes. And he did in this case, you know, I wish I had been smarter back in the day so that I could have been better. Yeah. So I guess just for, you know, some self-study, we're kind of out of time on this one. But if you guys will look at, you know, just a couple of the cases here, Ananias and Sapphira, we've got uh, the idol of status or wealth that's found in Acts 5. You can kind of yeah. read and see what their idol brought them. Israel, you mentioned this, the golden calf that's found in Exodus 32. You can see how that worked out for the Israelites when Moses came back down from the mountain. Israel, again, and the idol of comfort we find in Numbers 21, where they complained about food and shelter and water and everything that they didn't have for the creature comforts of life. And you can read, you know, the plague of serpents and the bronze serpent. You can read those. Um, and, you know, maybe on further podcasts, we might bring those up, but those are great ones for you to, to just investigate on your own and see the sizes, big and small, that idols can come in and some of the effects that they have both on God's people uh, throughout time, but also how they can have dramatic effects on us in our lives. Just like Ricky, you were talking about with, with your, your wife being an idol, just like you know, mine ended in divorce uh, from making her or our relationship an idol. And many other people find, you know, destruction and um, discontentment, a lack of joy, depression, anxiety. All of those can be a result of idols in our lives, which is why they're your joy stealers. Could I offer one more? Yeah. In those particular cases, we're, you know, dealing with things you know, those physical, tangible things, you know, like the golden calf, right? Stuff yeah. like that. But not always, right? Just like with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, uh, you refer to it as an idol of status, right? That kind of thing. There's another one in the book of Acts that has to do with probably the most, uh, I don't know, I don't want to say most important, but probably the most well-known apostle in, in the Word of God. That would be Paul. In the early days of his ministry, he was on, he'd take these missionary trips with somebody by the name of Barnabas. And and then you pick that up in Acts chapter 13. And uh, if, if you're listening to this podcast, when you pick it up, the story up there, it, his name is Saul, and it's later changed to Paul. But 13, 14, 15 is this story of uh, the missionary journey, the return to Jerusalem in 15, and there's some conflict that takes place. And then the Apostle Paul wants to go back on another missionary journey, so he says to Barnabas, let's do that. And, and towards the end of chapter 15 is a kind of a an introduction of conflict over who they're going to take with them. And I'd recommend that 13, 14, and 15, especially the end of 15, to you as another of these relational idolatry issues. This great missionary team of Paul and Barnabas broke up because of 
a a dispute they had over one of the younger one of the young missionary guys that they that Barnabas wanted to take with them, but Paul did not. And you can read about that. And what was lost because instead of complete contentment, trust, faith in God to, to take care of things and, and how that damaged the relationship between uh, Paul and Barnabas. And the Bible's filled with these things that when we find our meaning apart from faith in the Lord, apart from abiding in the Lord, just bad stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this particular podcast, uh, Chris, is, you know, a bit of a Debbie Downer, isn't it? <laughs> Can be. <laughs> uh, I guess it depends on how you look at it, right? Because it is a stark reality to learn that oh, nearly anything in the world, I can turn into an idol. Yeah. But like we said earlier, the flip side of that is, no, don't look at it as a Debbie Downer, but look at it from the other point of view. God revealing to us that all those things that we make mistakes with and turn into idols, all of that becomes richer. If in the here and the now, we understand that. And that's why I said, looking back, I lament that even a wonderful and beautiful and incredibly relationship that I had with my beloved, I believe, I believe I could have been so much better in that. I could have been a better husband, a better soulmate, a better companion. And I, I know that for a fact. I could have been. And as a result, even the wonder and the joy I look back on would have been even more grand. And some people go, that, that's kind of like really being hard on yourself. And it, it's not. It's just being real. It's just being real. Because I don't want to repeat the mistakes of my past. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray over the idols that are in and throughout this world. God, I pray for the listeners on this podcast, Lord, that you will, through your spirit, bring up some of these idols that we're so quick to pick up. Maybe it was developed slow, but as we develop them, it's a, it's a comfort. It's a security that we can fall back on. And, and I just pray against those idols, Lord. I pray that you will bring those that you can help them to name and then defame those and, and lord to seek you instead of whatever that idol is is providing in their life uh, the hole in their soul that's being filled with it lord we ask that you will show them that you can do that and more so than that idol ever could and just bring the joy back into people's lives and um, take away the depression and anxiety that comes with the un, unknowns with those idols, those things that change, the jobs, the, the relationships, the money, the wealth, those things change and, and they ever change, but you never change. So help them to place that in you. Give them the strength, the wisdom and understanding of your word to be able to do that. And we pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.
So we want to end with an important scripture that reminds us to abide in him. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. As you walk through this week, we encourage you to review the scriptures and themes we talk about and ask the Holy Spirit to team up with you to bring this information to life personally in your walk. Thank you for listening, and God bless.